Hi, Monica Lopez here. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to consider supporting independent media and making contact by becoming a donor. We know we're not the only podcast you listen to, but we certainly do hope we're among the group that's worth giving to. And your donation is tax deductible. So visit our website at radioproject.org. And now, here's the show. Making contact. Making contact. Making, making, making contact. It seems like people have like rituals that help them on like a day-to-day level cope. Do you have something like that for yourself? You mean besides having a glass of wine when I'm done with my work day? No. <laughs> You're listening to Making Contact and Self-Care as Selfless Act, Mental Health at the Root of Activism. I'm Paulina Velasco. This episode is all about a little talked about aspect of social justice work, mental health. A lot of us can relate to the sentiment you heard from Megan Ortiz about wanting to decompress after a long day. She's one of the many activists I interviewed for this piece. I wanted to interview people who dedicate their daily lives to serving others. I was wondering how much heavier life and work can be for an activist. There's this constant mourning that we're experiencing. There's this constant loss. There's this constant uh, feeling of, of defeat. Hector Plasencia is an immigrant community health advocate and executive director of Plasencia Consulting. They've been doing this work for 15 years. And I think that's why it can be so difficult to get people interested in being a part of the work and uh, be sustainable within the work. I first met Hector when I was reporting a story in Los Angeles about how health clinics were responding to a Trump administration policy that was making their immigrant patients scared to go to the doctor. I do a lot of reporting from LA's immigrant community. And community leaders and advocates were starting to share bits of their inner lives with me the more I got to know them. It seemed like a really hard job to be an immigrant rights activist. Keeping up with policies that change constantly, listening to people's stories of hardship, trying to find solutions for them. I kept hearing about how that takes its toll emotionally, mentally, and how not a lot of people seem to notice. Frances Chinchilla sees it a lot. She's a licensed clinical social worker at Altamed, a health network in Southern California. She treats patients as a therapist, and she's also in charge of checking in on other therapists on her team about how they're doing. Is there like a certain kind of person that ends up becoming a, an advocate or an activist or somebody who serves? Yeah, I would say so. I would say that it's people who can really tap into empathy. It's almost like a moral duty for them to to be this voice. At Altamed, Francis serves primarily low-income Latinx immigrant families in Los Angeles. Francis also grew up in L.A. in a Guatemalan family. People who are very conscious about disparities and who've experienced them themselves, I think are the people that go into this advocacy kind of work. So witnessing injustice or experiencing it personally draws some people into advocacy to try to right those wrongs. 
which means for many people in activism or organizing work, the issues hit close to home. This is something I can relate to. I was born and raised in Southern California, but my parents and siblings came from Mexico. I think there's definitely a reason I report on experiences of immigration in the U.S. It's something I'm familiar with. For Evelyn Hernandez, it's basically impossible to separate her identity from the work she does. Evelyn's a lead organizer with the TPS Alliance at the Central American Resource Center in Los Angeles, where she started working about 10 years ago. She's been living in L.A. since the 90s when she emigrated from El Salvador. She's a recipient of TPS, or Temporary Protected Status, that allows her to live and work in the U.S., but she has to apply for renewal every year. And there's no path to residency or citizenship. In 2018, the Trump administration canceled TPS for Salvadorans. That meant they couldn't apply for renewal and had to leave the country forever. For Evelyn, that would mean leaving her three U.S.-born sons behind. She remembers the exact moment she heard the bad news. I remember that we were watching TV. We were having a family dinner. We have these dinners together at least two or three times a week, as often as we can. Evelyn is married and calls her children the love of her life. So, I remember that dinner. All four of us were sitting down and watching the news on, well, I won't give the TV channel any free advertising. But then the reporter said, TPS for Salvadorians has been canceled. You have just 18 months left and then it's over. That was the last one. I remember my son's faces. They all turned around to look at me. It turned into such a bitter dinner. I felt enraged, powerless. I was angry. My children should not be living through this just because of the Trump administration. Evelyn had already been working for years advocating for a path to permanent residency for TPS holders many of whom have been in the U.S. for decades and, like Evelyn, have U.S.-born children. So this moment for her was like a call to arms. I'm fighting to stay strong for my children. In my picture of the future, I don't see myself living in El Salvador and leaving my sons here. That was never the plan. In my vision, it's always been me with my sons, watching them grow up, get married, have children of their own, be surrounded at every possible moment with my grandchildren. So that's the picture I envisioned for myself that day. A matter of immigration policy had directly impacted Evelyn's life. Her work, her career had always been personal, but now... You get a knot in your throat and you start to feel angry and you tell yourself, I'm going to give it my all to fight against this administration. And I don't even care about the consequences because they're hurting what I love most in the world. And for me, that's my family, my children. And through the pain, you cry. Five minutes, two minutes, three minutes, whatever, you cry. But then it's over. And you harden yourself and you say, this will not make me weak. I have to be stronger. In 2018 and 2019, TPS holders sued the federal government 
over the cancellation of TPS for people from El Salvador, Sudan, Nicaragua, Haiti, Honduras, and Nepal. So Evelyn's departure has been postponed over and over while the cases make their way through the courts. In the meantime, Evelyn has organized marches to Washington, appeared in the news. This is her at a Telemundo conference. A panelist asks her to talk about how she copes with the uncertainty of these court cases. Evelyn says, do you want me to answer as a TPS recipient or as an organizer? If you ask me as a TPS recipient, I start crying, she says. But if you ask me as an organizer, I have a heart of stone. This is Evelyn a few months later explaining what she meant. I tried to separate the two things. My personal life, when I get to my house, is one, and the other is my work life. I grew up in El Salvador, and in El Salvador, they say what happens when you cross the threshold of your house stays inside your house. And what happens outside your house stays outside, and you deal with it there. You don't mix up the two. No se mezclan las dos cosas. No es que no quiero ser débil, ¿verdad? It's not that I don't want to look weak, it's that I just don't want to place myself in a victim mindset. I try to block everything that might be painful to me. And honestly, I can't even explain it to myself. All I know is that I block the things that are painful in my soul or my heart so that I can put up a fight and concentrate on what's in front of me. Because all I know is that I have to fight to stay here, and I do not have the luxury to think too much about it. One thing that sticks out about Evelyn is that her work is so tied to her personal immigration status. But to her, it's really about family. She wants to stay in the U.S. for her sons. Frances, the therapist, says she notices a lot of her Latinx patients put family first. She says it can be a good thing. Family is like a built-in support system for us. But she also observes how a focus on family can block some people from attending to their own individual needs. Oftentimes, um, there is a lack, well, yeah, oftentimes I'd say, a lack of self-empathy, a lack of self-compassion. And there is this sense of, like, I have to be in the service of others. Uh, my duty is to, to the family, to others, taking care of their needs. And, um, and having to carry that makes people believe to some degree that they have to sort of just hold it down, keep it together 24-7. And in terms of, like, where that stems from... Um, Culture and upbringing, I think, is usually the root of it. And all this can get in the way of a person seeking professional help. Some of that is changing, but Francis still says there's a lot of stigma around mental health. Even for first-generation, second-generation American um, patients, there's an idea like, you know, we don't, we don't need this, we don't do this. It's not part of who we are as a culture. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Porque lo, yo, yo no soy loca. Yeah. ¿Qué me va a decir loca? You know? <laughs> la vecina está la, la loca. You remember Megan Ortiz from the top of the show? She's the executive director of IDEPSCA, a workers' rights organization in Los Angeles. 
She's from a Puerto Rican family in New York, where she started organizing as a teenager. She's been involved in activism for about three decades. It's not a phase. Sorry, mom. It just never <laughs> makes it. She says she almost hit a breaking point right before COVID-19 shut everything down in the U.S. in March 2020. This transition, like right before pandemic time, was like, oh, yeah, I need to like, if I'm going to make it, <laughs> we need to figure out the mental health situation and I need to like learn how to be take better care of myself. Just because I was, I was, you know, I was burning out and I also have a tendency to overwork. I, I'm like, I like to be, you know, typical daughter of immigrants, you know, be the gold star student. Megan decided she needed help. She signed up for therapy. I also like got I like antidepressants. I'm not even going to lie. Antidepressants yeah. and anti-anxiety medications. I, mean, I think there's a lot of like stigma about talking about those things, especially like within the nonprofit world, especially if you have like a title like executive director, you're supposed to act a certain way and present yourself a certain way. My mentor died, you know, out of like uh, uh, untreated cancer for a really long time because he worked himself to death. Like, like that's what he did. And like, he didn't care for himself the way he should have. Work-life balance is hard anyway for, for women, especially for women of color, especially. I mean, so that's all, all that's a lot to handle on its own. And then on top of the pandemic and then I'm a single mother. No, that's, that's a lot. And it's okay to say that's a lot. You're listening to Self-Care as Selfless Act, Mental Health at the Root of Activism, on Making Contact. This show is offered for free to stations around the world. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is making underscore contact. And now back to Self-Care as Selfless Act mental health at the root of activism. And a topic you might have heard Megan Ortiz mention. You know, I was burning out. When she said she felt like she had to get help because she was starting to burn out. Burnout is a real mental health condition that can impact activists. It's a state of emotional, mental, and sometimes physical exhaustion that comes from working under a lot of stress for a prolonged period of time. There are several stages to burnout. The first is being enthusiastic about a job that you like doing. Organizing really helped me feel less powerless. That's Roque Armenta. They're based in LA where they grew up in a working class family, their parents were born in Mexico, but grew up in the U.S. too. Roca is the associate director of Power California, a civic engagement group that focuses on empowering California youth. My 20s were just, you know, I think I was starting off on my career and I felt like I needed to sacrifice so much of my life, right? Um, and I think at the time when I was growing up, there weren't too many folks. Like, that was the culture in organizing, I feel. The way that I think a lot of times I decompressed was like, hey, let's go out for a drink after, right? But I think after a while, I realized when I got to my 30s, like, ah, I just, I still felt, like, tired. In the next couple stages of burnout, you start noticing some days are harder than others. Then it becomes just chronic stress. It shows up in physical symptoms, anger, self-isolation. 
For Roque, it took more than two years to realize what they were experiencing was burnout. I couldn't think. I couldn't focus. I felt like I was bad at work. I realized like I was just almost like in a routine at work, like kind of just like not really connected, um, not really excited. And, and that made me feel bad because I was like, you know, I felt like I'd given so much of myself to this work and like, you know, I, I knew I felt dedicated, but detached. I don't know how to explain this, but there was just this feeling where I knew deep down there was more, but I couldn't access it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, I got to a point where I was just like dreading going to work. <laughs> um, and I, I, it took me a while to acknowledge because I also think like I didn't want to let folks down. I felt scary like I was um, like ungrateful. A key part of burnout is institutional stress, feeling like you don't have control over your work schedule, for example, or that you lack support in the workplace. It can happen when someone feels an internal conflict about what they're doing, too. But it's not usually about the work itself. Frances talks about this in her own line of work as a therapist. So I think we just stumble across some frustrations with just the systems at play not necessarily with the work that we're doing with the patients. And it's also not necessarily having all the, the resources that we feel that, we, that the patients might need, right? Like um, services are sort of limited for people, especially undocumented people um, around mental health and psychiatry and, and then all those adjunct other services like housing. And so there's like the systemic things that are, obviously not in my control, but are really not necessarily in their control either. And, and so that's where the frustration happens. And there's another way that the work activists do impacts their mental health, a thing called compassion fatigue. People in the helping field are just at higher risk of burnout. Uh, definitely compassion fatigue. I think it's a term that's used for people in, in caregiving positions. And it's just like an overloading of hearing constant stories of distress um, and, and people's traumatic experiences. And that's where vicarious trauma also comes into play. Compassion fatigue is a little different from burnout. A lot of the symptoms are similar. It's a kind of emotional exhaustion. But according to the American Institute of Stress, compassion fatigue can come on faster and can be cured faster. Francis also called it vicarious trauma or secondary trauma because it involves taking in the trauma of others. What happens is, over time, a person that has to exercise their empathy a lot starts to feel unable to care for others as deeply as they'd like to. Hector Plasencia was a recent college grad when they participated in a summer program at the University of California, Los Angeles, called the Dream Resource Center. It provides internships and leadership opportunities to undocumented youth like Hector. Hector was already working and thinking deeply about mental health and healthcare access. So they started a project where groups of young people could come together and share their experiences of the U.S. immigration system. Hector found it difficult to facilitate that space. The first day... People came ready to talk, ready to vent, ready to pour out everything that they've been holding. And these are people that just needed to say it. And there was finally a space to say it. And so that night, it was so beautiful. 
and at the same time so overwhelming i didn't realize the impact that it was having on my body i went home and my partner at the time there was like a party that night and i couldn't go because i was having like an anxiety attack but Hector didn't let the experience discourage them from continuing the work they were able to recognize the compassion fatigue they were feeling and redirect their efforts for me it's been about creating emotional boundaries so I wasn't able to facilitate the circles but I was able to train people on how on how to have these conversations navigate them through uh this thinking process and uh, the funding aspect of it how to try to sustain it In addition to creating those boundaries as Hector describes it another way to combat compassion fatigue and burnout is to keep taking care of yourself If I'm not doing things for myself and feel like everything that I'm giving is for y'all and for community, for movement, for Latinx, for immigrants, then it, um, then I start to get angry for my decisions. You get back in there, right. right, I get back in there, I get the angry again, the, the resentment. Hector and I talked a lot about that, about getting to the point where you feel like you're trying so hard to do some good in the world but you're not seeing the results or you're getting tired and sad and mad and you start to resent the work itself. And obviously those feelings are not conducive to working in the service of others in a sustainable way. It all finally comes back to health. Mental health is important for activists not only because it's important for any given individual. It's important because it's what keeps them going. It's just kind of like the same advice that I give uh patients who well not advice because I'm not supposed to give advice but what what I try to encourage um is really taking care of yourself because you are caring for others and so you have to constantly check in with yourself you have to constantly replenish your well um to do this work and to do any any work which is in the service of others period because you you can't you will burn out Uh, you will burn out quick and we need you so <laughs> take care of yourself so oh, it's almost like taking care of yourself is like an a selfless act because you're doing it not only for self-preservation but in order to keep doing the work that you do for Hector healing has always been the path forward in social justice work there's always a necessity to get involved there's always a necessity to get involved whether you should step in whether you should say something whether something should change there's a necessity to do something what whether people will what moves them towards that that's where i draw back to healing if someone that's healed that means they feel comfortable in who they are expressing themselves understanding the situation and moving with clarity and so my hope is that as this healing process takes place it's also a part of people recognizing their agency and that's what happened for roque they went to grad school and while i was in grad school that's also when i was able to do more work around like my gender identity and so um i think part of also why i was tired was because i was hiding a big part of who i was and so it wasn't until i i i burned out that i realized i had to do something different because I want to be here um in the long haul like um I matter and so I had to also make sure that I wasn't only taking care of my community but also I had to take care of myself. Um I've had to 
um, over time, right, like figure out how do I like refill that cup, right? As I'm giving to others, how do I refill that cup? Healing, refilling that cup can come in many forms. And many people call that day-to-day practice self-care. And there's a lot of things that can be part of a self-care routine. The need to connect, um, the need for spirituality, to practice gratitude. Those are sort of things that feed the spirit, feed the soul. Minimum, say three things that I'm thankful for. I am not very religious, but I do believe very much in God. Is there a meal I want to eat? Is there a show I want to watch? A song I want to put on and repeat for like 10 times because it makes me super happy. Like the need for creativity, the the need for um, therapy, being able to process things. Reading because it takes you to a whole new world. Tending to my garden. I love cooking. Social media, not gonna lie. Try to meditate every day. I go to therapy every week. To be able to to process emotion physically. I can eat right, I can exercise, I can sleep. Dance and music are huge for me. I'm part of a, a bomba group. I have a face routine, like cutting my own hair. I go running in the mornings. I started crossing. There's so many levels to it. A study about the freedom of the press carried out in the 1940s called the Hutchins Commission wrote this, quote, It is no longer enough to report the fact truthfully. It is now necessary to report the truth about the fact. The truth about the fact is that work in the service of others and for the improvement of others' lives, whether it's activism, social justice work, whatever form it might take, can be joyful and difficult. Some things about the world change slowly, if at all. Being a human being who cares a lot about that is hard. It's definitely hard, but I think that's why it's so rewarding. And there are lots of people who keep at it, who keep caring. It's interesting, it's been interesting to hear how the like little things seem, even though they seem little compared to the big thing that's the problem, the little self-care routines and the small moments seem to be what keeps people going. Yeah, I think it's like being able to to change the, the lens in which you're looking at things, right? Like when you take that wider shot, it it could just consume you and overwhelm you. And, and so sometimes just really tightening the shot, I guess, into focusing on one thing that you can do right now or today or tomorrow, that there's movement in that. Um, It's not gonna solve every single problem, uh, but it's something. That was Frances Chinchilla, a licensed social worker with Altamed Health Services. We also heard from Hector Plasencia. There's always a necessity to get involved. Rocar Menta. As I'm giving to others, how do I refill that cup? Evelyn Hernandez. Yo estoy luchando por mantenerme firme por mis hijos. 
and Megan Ortiz. Oh, that's a lot to handle on its own. And it's okay to say that's a lot. Special thanks also to Dr. Sandra Pisano and to Jocelyn Perez, who I spoke to for this project as well. I'm Paulina Velasco in Los Angeles. You can find photos of the people you heard from in this piece on my social media accounts. I'm at underscore Pina Velasco, that's P-I-N-A-V-E-L-A-S-C-O. There, you can also find resources that Francis, Roque, Hector, and the others recommend for mental health and self-care, books, IG accounts, blogs. This piece was produced as a project for the USC Center for Health Journalism's 2020 California Fellowship. Special thanks to Catherine Stifter. It was edited by Monica Lopez. Mariana Carstens did the voiceover for Evelyn Hernandez. The executive director of Making Contact is Sonia Green. Lisa Redman is director of production initiatives and distribution. Making Contact producers are Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, and Salima Hamarani. For other shows and more information about this episode, visit radioproject.org. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.